And when I go to work with my clients, they kind of go through my process and they start to realize, oh, it's not about chasing the money. It's about providing the value. And this fucker is going to force us to provide value, which is what I do for them. And that's what makes them successful. It's actually not just the ad campaign. It's teaching them in the process of the ad campaign how to provide the customer with such value that the customer cannot help resist but share their product and their offer. And that's what brilliant advertising is. Welcome to the Viral by Design podcast with Dave Rothero, where we get inside the minds of today's leading viral marketers as they reveal the exact strategies they use to build brands, products, and campaigns that are magnetic to customers, spread like wildfire, and seize the attention of millions. This is Viral by Design. So welcome to another episode of Viral by Design. I'm extremely excited today to be joined by the one and only Ron Lynch. Ron is the man responsible for generating over $3 billion in sales for brands like GoPro, Samsung, Rig Doctor, Eagle One, to name but a very few. He's the co-author of Buy Now, creative marketing that gets customers to respond to you and your product. He's the founder and creative director of Big Baby Agency. He's taken decades of experience in TV information, informational advertising and uniquely adapted the tried and tested concepts of influence for highly profitable digital advertising campaigns. He's also pretty much my favorite person to follow on social media with regular wisdom, philosophies and money mindset advice, which is completely invaluable and very different to what most of the people are telling you online. So Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate being here. So you, your background is in retail operations, right? And then you eventually you kind of retail operations and filmmaking that culminated in your kind of early infomercial career. Can you talk a little bit more about how that happened and your kind of general backstory? Yeah, it, it, it kind of stuttered. It actually, I started actually in film when I, I was going to, I was in college and I was studying to be a, a trial attorney. I took an acting class and my roommate uh, was an actor and got an audition in a film and invited me along. And I went, skipped a day of school, and I ended up leading a, getting a leading role in this film that Robert Altman director, directed. And Robert Altman was a prominent American film director. He had done about 30 films. Things you might know that he did were MASH, Nashville, The Player. Um, so he was, he was pretty famous. And I was lucky enough to stay on and work as a crew member for the six weeks that the filming was being done and watch all the dailies every day. I started figuring out how films were being made and that led me, that got me a SAG card, which in the United States is a very difficult thing to have. And so for my first audition to have a SAG card that allowed me to audition for union movies. And so I lived in Seattle at the time and there were a lot of movies being made in Seattle at the time. And I just went from audition to audition and I got picked up as a character actor in a lot of these films, uh, one and two day bit player stuff, but I always asked to stay on his crew. So I did. My day job was I worked in a grocery store and I kept that day job throughout and they stopped making movies. They had some union changes in the, in the industry and they really stopped making movies in Seattle. And I didn't want to move to Los Angeles and I stayed in the grocery business and I worked my way up in retail grocery from checker to front end manager to frozen food manager to assistant store director to store director. And then I eventually became uh, a CEO through the, the fortune of having good mentors in that business. Um, and I was running a store when I was 27. Um, by the time I was 30, 
I was pretty competent at it. And the bank started putting me in stores that were failing to, to turn them around. And part of the turnaround process was selling higher margin mixed goods. So really teaching the audience how to eat and cook better. So we had cooking kiosks in the store and would move people from, um, frankly, eating poor food to rich food and poor quality food to better quality food and teaching food preparation. And that led to one of my clients saying, hey, can I borrow the kitchen that's on the store floor to shoot an infomercial for the George Foreman Grill? We're shooting man on the street testimonials for that. And I said, yes. And so that became kind of a regular thing. They started renting space in the store to shoot these segments for infomercials. And I had a penchant for, like I always wanted to make TV commercials as a kid anyway. So like, that was my first passion. And so I just asked, I said, hey, could, could I maybe get involved in this? And they said, do you think you could write an infomercial? And I said, yeah, I think so. What's an infomercial? Um, and uh, at the same time that I met George Foreman's agent, Sam Perlmutter, I, I sold him a screenplay that I wrote um, thanks to one of the guys that worked at that agency. And they said, yeah, why don't you come in and try and do screenplay? So I actually quit my job in the grocery business and uh, moved over into advertising. And the first infomercial I did was for Space Bags. And that was a short form. I did two of them for American Tourist during Samsonite, co-branded. And then I started doing a lot of cooking ones. So the Ultimate Chopper, Flavor Wave Deluxe Oven for Kevin Harrington. A um, lot of cooking shows, a lot of cleaning shows, lots of tool and hardware shows, and then some fitness along the way. So here I am 25 years later, 20 years later, and uh, learned some tactics and uh, how to do those and been, been adept at it. And I think we've, yeah, I think we're up to somewhere four or $5 billion in revenue. That's pretty impressive, man. So it's fascinating to hear that kind of um, uh, the progression from short floor demo to TV demo. So how much of that stuff are you still like the, the actual demo style infomercials and ads? How much of that stuff do you still do today? And how do you kind of transfer that into an online space? So one of the things that I do and one of the things I teach people is really is how to take that the technique of a long form infomercial and put it online because really good marketing funnels, actually our infomercials broken up into pieces. And there's an ideal format for that, that most people are unaware of. And people are haphazardly putting ads out going, Hey, did that ad work? Did that ad work? Did that ad work? Instead of thinking process, because the consumer's in a process, the, the consumer has to bump into you. They have to have a problem. You have to identify the problem. The story has to be about their problem specifically. Then you, you have to provide a solution, then belief for that solution, then, then demonstration for it, then credibility, then third-party credibility. So all of those things are part of advertising and probably sound rote to people who are listening. But how you present that in the order uh, and the length and, and the, the psychology of that is critical. So it's not a different industry. Yeah. Um, and this industry isn't, doesn't go back to the infomercial. This industry goes back to the uh, carnival barker or the guy in the cart that came into town with medicinal oil or shovels and picks or whatever he had in the cart. Um, it's the fair pitch business. And the, the advent of the infomercial was really people like me going to county fairs and finding the pitch people like the Billy Mazes of the world 
and going, that's an amazing pitch. We have to videotape that. Cause that's really what it is. It's a carnival pitch that's on television and yeah. what you're doing online. It's a carnival pitch that's online. So do you think TV advertising is something because, you know, obviously you're transferring a lot of what you're doing online. Do you think TV advertising is still a thing or do you think it's just a volume play for bigger brands? Like where do you see that going and, and is it everything moving online or is, is there still value in TV advertising? Um, there's definitely value in TV advertising and we have tons of people that are still doing it. And there's two ways to look at TV advertising. One is, are you known or are you unknown? And what that really means is, do you have a distribution network in place or do you not have a distribution network in place? Now, thanks to the internet, if you're in an internet business, you have a distribution network in place, you may not have customer awareness, okay? McDonald's, Chick-fil-A, Best Buy, Target, they have a distribution network so they can introduce a new sandwich, a new shoe, a new whatever. Now that's brand advertising. They're just making you aware of something. Do you want it? There you go. They don't even have to put an offer out there. They just have to say it's available. Yeah. With unknowns, you have to go through the process of problem solution, USP, offer, and then a CTA, call to action. This is where you go to get it. So the, it's, the, it's really just the mathematics of how much does the audience already know about you? Now, that's not TV advertising. That's TV advertising. That's newspaper advertising. That's radio advertising. That's internet advertising. What people don't realize is that this is a TV. Your computer screen is a TV. Like there's TVs everywhere. We just tend to think of TVs as being TVs because of when we were born. People that are born right now will not be able to distinguish a television from a computer, from a phone. It's just media to them, visual media. And when we get, if we can unlock that in our minds, for instance, if you own a website right now and you don't have video on your website, that's like owning a TV station without an FTC license or an FCC license and having a still image. Like, could you imagine if you turned on your television and on, say, NBC or the BBC, there was a printout of the news that scrolled? You'd be like, what the fuck's going on here? But people still treat their own websites that way. They own a television station. What a magnificent thing for this is a TV studio. If I had this technology 25 years ago, I'd have ruled the world because I'd been the only person with it. But now you have a TV studio in your hand with instant satellite communications. You can jump on Facebook Live and talk to the entire planet from your phone mm. with video. And I think this is where like so many people get, get um, caught up because there's so much opportunity, right? And I think this is true. So many things on the internet, there's so much opportunity that you literally just sit back and go, I, I just get confused and get blown away. But the, the whole time you were talking then, it, it was reminding me of, I, I know you're also a, um, uh, well, I think you're an honorary wizard of Wizard Academy now, right? Yeah. Yeah. So being at Wizard Academy and Roy H. Williams, the legend that is Roy, um, was talking about the concept of, um, everything just being essentially a blank canvas. So like, whether it be prints, whether it be, um, whether it be digital, whether it be TV, whether it be radio, it's all essentially a blank canvas. And what really matters is the message, right? It's the fundamentals of advertising and influence that, that really make the difference. So 
what I hopefully teach, and, this, and actually I got the class coming up at the Wizard Academy. I don't know how that's going to go in tandem with how your podcast gets launched or the, how this episode gets seen, but it's in mid-April of 2021. We're at the beginning of April, end of March here. Um, what we teach in, in segments that I do is how to take your company and invert what you're doing back to the audience. So let's say you're a wizard and you have a whole village. Uh, you want to cast a spell on the whole village. And casting spells is a very interesting way to talk about what we do because we write words with letters. We spell words. Then we cast spells spells out of our mouth, right? So the exact wording, now I have a code that I'm speaking right now. You're hearing that code and your brain is decoding it, taking meaning from what I'm saying. If I'm extremely articulate and very careful about the words I select, you're going to give me control of your mind and you're going to let me do some wiring for you. That's why we love comedians. We go to a comedy show because we know the, com the comic is going to take disparate ideas and connect them. And when those connections happen, neurons fire in the brain and dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin are released and we laugh uncontrollably and we feel good. And we walk away going, that person, she was really smart or he was really smart. Funny, we equate with smart but we're willing to turn our brains over to let somebody drive them if they'll entertain us. So how can you be entertaining, educational, informative, lighthearted, sad-hearted? How can you move me emotionally and take control of my mind with words and pictures? Can you, is it possible for you to do that while you talk about you? No. You have to be talking to me about me. I guarantee you I know inside of a museum what image gets looked at the most in every museum in the world. You say the mirror. <laughs> it's the mirror in the bathroom. <laughs> it's the mirror in the bath. People walk through museums and they skip that painting, skip that painting, skip that painting, and look at a few paintings. But you go watch them in the bathroom and they'll spend five minutes looking at their face. Yeah. We spend a lot of time in the morning looking at our face. Whether, you know, that's the nature of human beings. We're enraptured by our own visage and our own insecurities and our own pride and all of the things that go along with that. So if you can approach your content from what, how do they see themselves? How do I get them to stop and look in the mirror in the first sentence? Then what happens in the second sentence? Do I point out a flaw or do I point out pride? Do I go good or bad on them? Do I sell hope or fear? What do I make them aware of? Then in a third is mirror, mirror on the wall. What change would you like to see? Oh, there's a change because everybody wants change. Everybody wants better. So if I can evoke change in sentence number three, Ah, in sentence number four, you can have that change. Would you like that change? How would your life look differently if you had that change? You can have it if you just listen a little longer. And then I repeat that process and it gets deeper. And every time we turn the screw, it goes a little bit deeper. We go back to the problem. We go back to the promise. We go back to the solution. Maybe we need proof. Maybe we need a testimonial of somebody who's achieved it. 
so that you believe that when I cast the spell, you'll get the benefit. Yeah. So you, you, you're talking about creativity and I'm curious to know like how that plays a part into those kind of ads because so you've got the direct, uh, direct response borderline <clears throat> NLP kind of advertising that you're talking about where you're literally like using words and influence and very systematically um, providing a market, marketing argument, which is highly relevant to the person listening. But then the creativity itself as well, something else that you said is, is you know, um, well, to paraphrase, pretty much the way to unlock people's attention is creativity, right? So when you're actually approaching an advertising campaign, um, is it like a, a kind of Harmon Brothers approach where you're going creativity, logic, creativity, logic, just to kind of hold their attention and, and bring them along? Or how is it you're actually combining that creativity with the, the straight ahead direct response principles? So the the Harmon Brothers do, and they're excellent at it, they use a process that is familiarity and storytelling that I know, and then breaking the story that I know. And that's kind of, so they take the fairy tale. That's where the, the uh, squatty potty came Important. from. Yep. Yeah, we take the prince and the unicorn, we put some stuff together that you're, you're familiar with, and then we break, oh, ice cream I'm familiar with. I never saw it come out of a unicorn's butt. Like they're taking things that are familiar and they're twisting them. And that's super useful. Um, and they did a magnificent job of making it about the audience. There's also some things that are process oriented in there as far as got your attention. Now we go to an animation to show you how it really works. Like there's things inside of that that are extremely formulaic. So what they've got is a box. And I think that's one of the things that you have to think about when you, people use the word creativity and other folks say, I'm not creative. Bullshit. If I locked you in a basement, you'd get creative. You'd find a way out. People are naturally creative and saying I'm not creative is actually a natural way of saying I'm lazy. You're creative. So the more constraints you have, the more creative you must become. So I have no money. Great. We're going to make an ad for no money. That's done all the time. We think GoPro is a billion dollar company. We, we got the IPO, I think, at $3.8 billion. In the first year, we were at 660 grand. The next year, we were at um, 6 million, then 60 million, then 600 million in sales. We didn't make one commercial. All the customers made the commercials. Mm. We gave the product to athletes. They made the commercials. We didn't have to go out. There's no camera crew involved. There was, these were the cheapest commercials ever made on television. There was no money. So we just handed the cameras out. People loved, right? That's creativity. So creativity is about limitations and what you do inside the limitations that forces you to get over the wall. So you're creative. Think about the limitations and then think about juxtaposition. Think about going back to that, that comic of how do I take two things that aren't connected and connect them in the consumer's mind and all the great commercials do that. They take something that's completely mundane and expected, and they tie it to something that's completely not expected. And they make those two things meet, dopamine and serotonin, like a really good TV commercial you watch and you enjoy. But a really good TV commercial, the second time it comes on, you go, come here, come here, come here. This is the one I gotta show. 
or you go, hey, I got it on my phone. That's what we do with really good content is we share it. That's the best media you'll ever purchase is your customer sharing your commercial for free. Yeah. Yeah, it's that viral uplift of, of um, and, it's, and this is something which is so possible, right, on social media. There's a few things you touched on there, which um, I know so many people get into like a fluff about how much it's going to cost to make ads, et cetera, et cetera. But some of the most successful ads that we've ever run have been like literally user-generated content, people doing reviews and like sending them back or like partnerships, as you said, like with GoPro, partnerships with people who try the products and saying, hey, do you mind if we use this? Throw it up online and suddenly you've got an ad, right? People get so so scared about um, uh, about getting creative and about coming up with some kind of you know really high level advertising campaign and, and you know high production quality, etc. But I know that's something that you've done in the past as well. So where does that fit into like what you do now? Do you still do the like what would be the time and the place for high level high production level um, film crews, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So if you're working with um a brand that has distribution and is introducing a new product, then you have the space and the bandwidth to have the budget to do creatives that are more expensive. It's not a requirement though. Um, there's, lots of, there's lots of big brands that rely on low production value, low cost. Look at eHarmony. eHarmony's been the same for 15 years. It's testimonials of people in a white background talking about dating. And the, the biggest sojourn they've ever taken to that is they've taken them outside sometimes or put them in a restaurant sometimes. It's a, it's a testimonial-driven campaign. So that's simple. I'll give you an example of something that we've done in the last couple of years where we took a business that didn't exist and we've turned it into, uh, I don't know, it's, it's a million or $2 million a month right now and it's growing. That's why I can't have trouble with the figure. Is The chair that I'm sitting in is, a, is called the Backstrong chair. The client um, came to us from Los Angeles, chiropractor who invented the chair alongside a guy who was a chair seat designer for BMW and LA Design Works. So these two guys that are about 70 years old, have had long careers in other places, went, hey, we're going to do this. They came to us and they didn't have a ton of money. They spent a lot of money on development, but they didn't have a lot of money for creative or media. So I said, well, you know what? Let's do a Kickstarter for this. And I'll do the Kickstarter with my business partner. And we did it for stock. We did it for very low dollars and for stock. And we sold, we used basically an infomercial technique and Kickstarter said, this will never work. This is way too long. We want two or three minute videos. We had an eight minute video, but we did $850,000. But we used our formula. We just made a short infomercial. And so obviously it worked. Then we got on to online. We still didn't have a ton of money because you're turning that Kickstarter money into inventory. And into, so how, what do we do next? I simply, I happen to own a red BMW and I happened to, the chair that I ordered from the Kickstarter is red and black. So I drug the chair down to my garage and I used my phone and I made a 60 second ad that explained, this is what the chair is. This is where it came from. And it's just a weird looking ad of why is this guy got a chair in his garage next to a car, what the hell is he talking about? You watch it and it leads to an animation that explains what the chair is and people purchase. Then my wife got in a wreck in the car. So I didn't add about the car being wrecked and how your body gets wrecked and how I happened to be in a skiing accident 20 years ago and crushed two vertebrae. And so then it led to pain relief. So that 
then, then the card got fixed. So we didn't add about half. So now we just, these are very cheap ads done with my phone, but each one of them is adding big time revenue because now there's a storyline, but the story's about the customer. Do you have a bad back? Do you, everybody sits in an office chair. You're, you know, it's COVID, you're locked in your house, you're now at home officing, you're probably sitting in your chair getting fat eight hours a day. Do you need to move? Do you need to have posture? What's posture mean to your body? What does lymphatic and blood flow mean to your body? Like there's all these things that are about them. Anybody can do this. Yeah, it's huge. And you know, that kind of story that you told there, like further illustrates how much this is just the nature of like the 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 platform. Like you didn't even mention which platform you put that out on, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, et cetera. But the platform is kind of secondary, right? So having that message, having that kind of, the, the influence and understanding what's going to actually move people to action, which is pretty much fun, well, pretty much every single time themselves, thinking about themselves. So is that something that you share publicly online or do you have like a, a secret formula that you guys use? I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a secret. It's a formula for sure. But I, I mean, I teach a class in it. I have a task class called the, the marketing mercenary. So I greatly appreciate that incredible setup for that. Um, but I do, I have a 13 week class where I teach money mindset for four weeks and then we work on these issues for your business. I teach you how to do a creative brief for your business, your product, your agency. We teach you how, and I give you my my existing briefs. Like you get, um, like we have a golf ball client, small company. Then we have Samsung, big company. I give you both of those examples. So you have this comparative analysis that you can do as you go back and work on your company or your product. And then you go from there to, okay, let's go to, to who are our customer audiences. I'm the wizard going to the village. I got to cast the spells on everybody. How do I talk to the women different from the children, from the men, from the rich men, from the blacksmith? Those are all customer verticals that need to be spoken to differently. How do you do that? And, uh, and how do you get people? Because most people are looking, again, to make one ad that hits it. One ad will not hit it, nor will it build a brand. Even Geico runs three or four campaigns at the same time. They've got the lizard, but they've also got the song thing that they do or the movie thing that they do. They're always doing four or five things to appeal to different verticals. But you know, it's the same company because the CTA is 15 minutes or less will save you $500 or more, whatever that is, right? So we teach how to do that. Anybody can learn how to do it, but you're not going to learn it in an hour. Learning something means you go through a process, you do things incorrectly, you do the work to do them correctly. Like you, if you think you could watch a one hour YouTube video on how to cut diamonds and then go down to the jewelry store and have them give you their raw diamonds and let you cut them because you watched a YouTube video on how to do it, you're smoking weed. <laughs> But there's a ton of people out there that'll watch a one-hour YouTube video on how to make a TV commercial or how to do branding or how to and think, I got this. You're, you're dashing my uh, my hopes and dreams on the $37 e-course that I just uh, purchased on how to make $100,000. <laughs> right? Well, and you know what? You can't. You probably can take a $37 course on how to make $100,000, but someday you're going to have to make $101,000. Right? Yeah. Like that's not a that's not learning. You you have to go through a process to learn to become a master at something. And if you don't want to be a master, if you want to be a shyster, 
go be a shyster. If you want to be a master, come in and learn a craft that is applicable over and over and over. So every time you get a raw diamond, you go, oh, this is an oh, this will never survive as a round cut. It's got to be an opal cut, or this has to be a sapphire cut. A master knows from experience what the company needs. That's from breaking things, not from building things. Yeah, from experience in the field. We, I, we, yeah, we can talk about the $4 billion for the stuff that I've sold, which is, you know, that's super great. But how, how much didn't I sell? How many of my campaigns didn't work? What are the things that were broken? And that's the stuff that I focus on is what's broken in me is probably broken in you. And let's get beyond those breaks and break some shit. And then that gets to the learning. And then implement, take it out in the world and practice it. And you go, oh, that works. Got it. Because once you see it work and do it, it's super easy to replicate. It's huge. And you know, that, that kind of the, the in the field, um, like experience of doing something like that is something which just cannot be underestimated. And I've been guilty of underestimating so many times in the past. People have told me and 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 told me, and told me a specific thing. And then I've gone and made the mistake that they tried to warn me against. And then suddenly it's like, oh, okay, right now I understand it, right? So the, I think there's a, there's a certain amount of you just actually have to get get out there and do it, right? Um, something that we, we were talking about just before we got sure, on with sure. when we kind, of, we kind of realized that um, we should probably be recording because it was gold, <laughs> was how you kind of work with people to um, to kind of, well, fundamentally, like break down their existing beliefs and then like realign them. And this was on, on a broader scale than just marketing. Uh, can you speak a little bit more to that and how people are potentially incorrectly thinking about making money and, and starting businesses? Well, it's the first of all, the nature of the world is to program you that you need more money to be fulfilled and you need more shit to be fulfilled. You need to have a certain type of vehicle or a certain type of house or a certain type of person that looks a certain way standing next to you. And if they don't, you can buy them bigger boobs or like we, we believe all of these preposterous things, but we're programmed 24 seven for those things, whether we're on the internet or on television or in the world, or even in conversations with people, because people are always validating the uh, acquiring of goods to appear to be something that you're not. And it's all driven by ego. What we teach people is that you want to have value in the world. That's essentially what you're saying. When we were in, when we were cave people, we had to get from being a hunter or a gatherer alone to being in a tribe because human beings are social and we need a doctor, a hunter, a cook. We need the other members of the tribe. So we must provide value. And we forgot when we became socialized that we needed to provide value. We started to look at the accoutrement of everybody's life and saying, oh, value is who's got the most shit. No, value is who provides the most. And if you look at the world, the successful people, and we say, oh, I want a billionaire. I could care less about being a billionaire. I know billionaires, they have as bad of problems, if not worse than the problems I have. The goal is not to be a billionaire. The goal is to have a fulfilled life where you are sustaining other members in the tribe. That's where they value you. That's, that's the love that you're actually looking for. You're looking to get over the trauma that you've experienced in life and be loved and valued. So you have to stop chasing money because you can't make money by chasing money. That's like chasing leaves in the wind. 
to have a tree. You can't assemble a tree. You've never built a tree in your life. You can go collect all of the leaves that you want, all of the branches you want, all of the wood you want, and you cannot build a fucking tree. It can't be done. You can't build a tree. You have to grow a tree. It means you have to start with something and you have to give it oxygen and you have to feed it and you have to grow it and then other people have to see it, which means you have to give value to the world. How do you shift your mind from being one of taking to one of giving? Now, to most people, that sounds exhausting. Oh my God, I don't have anything to offer the world. Bullshit. Just like we described creativity. You do if you'll just stop and breathe for a moment. So we take people through that process of how to shift their value structure into one that provides actual value in the world and what, what money actually is, because money is not. Let's play a game, okay? I'll ask you a question, you answer the question. I'm gonna let you answer it three or four different times too. Okay. Money equals. Uh, influence. Okay, money equals, so what would somebody else say? Freedom. What else would somebody else say? Uh, provision. One more. Uh, money equals lifestyle. Okay. So there's things like success, right? Yeah. So I'll tell you as your friend, potential mentor, you have an emotional problem with money. <laughs> Would you disagree with me? Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> okay. I mean, we're just being real with each other. Yeah. So the thing that people most typically answer is the thing that they would like the world to give them that they feel a shortage of. So in your case, it might be influence. Maybe that's why you do a podcast is you wanna be influential. Maybe that's like, and you're young, don't be offended by that. Everybody wants to be influential when they're young and they wanna be influential when they're older. But is that what money really equals? Could you be influential without any money? hundred oh, yeah. percent. Could you have freedom? We've all been in a place where we didn't have any money. Did we have freedom? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We see people that have that use the word choice a lot. Oh, money gives me more choices. Okay. When you didn't have money, did you have choices? Yeah. Not necessarily the better choices, but have plenty of them. But, but, but you had abundant choices. Yeah. And, and you use some of those choices to get to where you are now. Hmm. So I... I now, there's two more questions beyond that, and I'll just leave those as open loops. I'm not going to dive into them, but you can see already that if I can break that very initial thought and say money actually doesn't equal influence. In fact, they're not even connected. Value that you provide the world definitely equals influence. Value that you provide the world definitely opens up your choices. I like I didn't ever traveled internationally before I was 30. And then when I started making people money, they were like, let's fly this guy to Paris. Let's fly this guy to Italy. Let's fly this guy to Egypt. He can make us money. People were all over the world were clamoring for me to come visit them and pay my ticket to go all over the world. I've never paid for an international flight in my life. People fly me all over the world. Why? Because I can make, make them money. Because yeah. they're still chasing the first thing. And I know they're chasing the first thing. And when I go to work with my clients, they kind of go through my process and they start to realize, oh, it's not about chasing the money. It's about providing the value. And this 
fucker is going to force us to provide value, which is what I do for them. And that's what makes them successful. It's actually not just the ad campaign. It's teaching them in the process of the ad campaign how to provide the customer with such value that the customer cannot help resist but share their product and their offer. And that's what brilliant advertising is. But it's also what brilliant life coaching is. How do you get your life to be of such value that people start sharing you and going, you got to meet Dave. My friend is brilliant. You got to meet him. I don't know what he's going to say to you, but he's going to unlock something that's going to change your life and it's going to change you. You're going to be better for having, he's going to cast a spell and he's going to teach you how to cast it. Those are the people you want to, those are the people you want to be around, right? 100%, 100%, man. So is this kind of concept of, of providing value, how would you, obviously you worked with some huge brands, right? And I'm curious to learn like how you got in, in, in contact with them and how you, um, did you network your way up using these principles of, of provision of value? So they, what happened was I had to turn nothings into somethings. Resourcefulness. So I had to find, I started with brands that didn't exist and we created them. And once we did it three or four or five times, people were like, oh, they turned the Sonicare toothbrush or the OxyClean or uh, Flavor Wave Deluxe Oven or the Ultimate Chopper, Light Relief or whatever. They turned that into this. They created nothing. They named it. They branded it. They, did the, they ran the design shop and they turned it into a $50 million, $100 million, $200 million business. Then... Inside a large corporation, what happens in the J&Js, Samsungs of the world is they go, we have a division where we're going to launch a new product and we don't have a lot of money. These guys are good at taking not a lot of money and turning it into something. So why don't we hire him to come in and help us see if they can do that process here? Because the pro- they seem to be pretty good with that process. So that's how you get a foothold in a large corporation. But again, do you see how that's growing a tree? You don't go out and land Microsoft on day one. That's not going to happen. They're not looking for you and you're not looking for them. They're looking for a Whedon and Kennedy who can do a branded campaign because they did Nike's branded campaign. People who call me need to sell something. They don't need to show something. They don't need to go, oh, it's available at Best Buy. They're like, hey, we don't have, we're not moving these SKUs and we we need the genius of how to sell it. And so I do, okay, the genius of how to sell it is to reverse engineer from the customer. Do you know how to do that? Good luck finding a CMO in America who's ever done it. They do not know. Because when you graduate from Wharton or Harvard or Princeton in marketing, you're taught how to do the Nike thing. Yeah. The Adidas thing. You're not taught how to do the GoPro thing. They have no idea how to do it. Yeah. You're not going to find a professor that knows how to do it either. Oh, 100%, 100%. I, how, how much money do you think is wasted on that kind of, I mean, those kind of campaigns where it's literally just like taking a billboard space for the, or figurative billboard space for the sake of taking it up. Do you think there's any value whatsoever in that for bigger brands where they literally just need to stay top of mind? Or like, do you think all bigger brands like Nike, like like the huge brands like that need to take more, more advantage of their response marketing and the principles we're talking about? Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I think it's, I think it, it's like a case study. Everything's different in its own, in its own way. Like, um, if I wanted to sell 
um, well, you just saw what this guy did this week uh, with Nike and the Satan shoe, right? Yeah. This guy, you know, went and I don't know whether Nike had a hand in it or not. Now they're saying they're not and they're suing him, which only creates more publicity for it. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's just, it's just an ingenious generator, but let's just say um, Nike came to me tomorrow and said, Hey, we want to make a, a shoe, a new basketball shoe, like the air Jordan. And we want to make a zillion dollars with it. Um, okay. I would go, let's you're everybody's looking for the next basketball player to sell a basketball shoe. I would zag instead of looking for the next basketball player, I would go backwards and I'd go, well, let's first do a Memorial Kobe shoe. Because if I do a Memorial Kobe shoe, I have all of these emotions that I can attach to the product and I can make it a limited edition. And then I'll start working my way backwards from there to a classic Jordan shoe, to a classic, we've never done a really good shoe for Dr. J or Wilt Chamberlain. Start going backwards because the guys who bought the first Nike Airs are now 50 and they know who Dr. J is. Like, this is what Lee Iacocca did in the automotive industry is Lee Iacocca was the guy who sold the Mustang, first Mustang, all of these people. And 15, 20 years later, he invented the minivan over at Chrysler, which was the same people. They'd gotten older and had kids. He sold the same, he sold what they needed then. He was, he was following an audience first and then tapping in with a product. And so I think that it can be done, but it's not, everything has a time and a place. Um, you're now like, they're selling Christmas trees to people who understand what Christmas is and what Christmas trees are. They're just selling them another Christmas tree, right? We don't have to establish the season, the meaning or anything. That's what branded advertising is, is selling Christmas trees. But if you wanted to create a new holiday, just say you did. Let's make up a holiday. Make up a holiday. The English don't have a really pronounced holiday that's globally known. They just uh, invade countries, plant flags, and piss people off. So let's say there's something wonderful about England that, that they did. What, did. what did England do for the world? Let's pick a day. Uh, we, we invented America. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, no, no. It turned out it turned out well for everybody, apparently. So, so let's say let's say it's a, a day that that commemorates colonialism. That you know what the modern world wouldn't exist without us. Sure, we planted the flags, we modernized the world, but we gave it all back at the end. No harm, no foul. Okay, let's create a holiday around that. Yeah. So reverse engineer. If we created a holiday, what's the product? that we would build to commemorate the holiday, to make sure the product took off and the holiday took off and they reinforced each other. What type of product would we create? A product to represent the holiday, you mean? Yeah, well, we'll if we wanted to propagate, like, hey, we're gonna create a holiday that represents uh, colonialism day, colony, we'll call it the colony, colony day. We're gonna call it colony day. I like it already. Okay. It's probably, it's probably a coin, right? That's how they usually commemorate those kind of things. Like a commemorative coin is very British. How do we really do it, though? Think about all the other holidays that have been made up kind of in our lifetime that we're like, yeah, that was a thing, but it wasn't a thing. 
we encourage people that it's a good idea to buy each other gifts to <laughs> to drink <laughs> alcohol. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Cinco de Mayo, St. <laughs> Patrick's Day. All, we manufacture holidays and we can't celebrate without booze. Yeah. You and I could start Colony Rum. Right, right. Pirate theme it. You dress up as either a pirate or a British soldier. Or both. Or a native. <laughs> Who do you dress up as for Colony Day? Your, your indigenous culture? A Brit? A pirate? Can you, you know, we just created an ad campaign just out of thin air right there. Yeah. And, a, and a product to reinforce it. Now we can put food around that. We can put... Like you can create a whole industry creatively just by going what doesn't exist that does exist that's what the Harmon brothers are doing they're taking things that exist and they're just moving them that's just what we did with colony day we took the idea of saint patrick's day and the idea of columbus day and the idea of cinco de mayo and went let's make one for the brits they deserve one let's not make it on july 4th let's take august seems to be pretty open <laughs> Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I completely hear you, man. It's um, it's a fascinating concept that like taking what people already know and then diverting that attention. It kind of reminds me of like Eugene Schwartz, the way he talks about you know you can't create desire; you just have to take desire that already exists and reangle it into something else, right? And that's what we could like that simply. We could in in the course of a thirty minute creative session or hour long with a group of five people, we could come up with a list of foods costumes, events to sell our alcohol. Just like that. Yeah. It's just that simple. But and I hope somebody watching this goes and does that. Yeah, 100%. It's taken down by the work brigade. <laughs> so, uh, Ron, I could talk to you for absolutely hours, man. It's um, fascinating and like this, this, uh, like obviously a wealth of experience in your brain. But obviously, we've, we've only got a certain amount of time here. Where can people find out more about the Marks and Mercenaries, about all the stuff that you've got going on, and about the, the Wizard Academy class that you're teaching in April? Um, the, the easiest way to uh, do the, to figure out the Wizard Academy piece is actually just follow me on Facebook. I just made a post about it, and you can put um, WizKid in the underneath the post, and then I'll directly send you that information. Um, now, if you see this podcast beyond that, um, you can Google Ron Lynch Marketing, or you can go to ronlynchmarketing.com, and ronlynchmarketing.com takes you directly to Gumroad, where my, my course is served up for you. Um, you can uh, see all kinds of testimonials there and the content. Uh, my Facebook page for my agency is Big Baby Agency. And I do a free 25-minute seminar on there that shows kind of how to build a creative, this process online of valley ad to animation to testimonial and how to create advertising that can be pulled apart or clustered together in the style of an infomercial that works in an ad path. Um, so that'll give you some really kind of free, like a free, good, quick masterclass. And it's got real examples of real commercials where you see it happen. And then I put them all together. So there's a, I'm easy to find. Yeah. This is the one where you're making pizza, right? I've taken like yeah, it's Yeah. It's kind of known as the pizza video. It's the, it's, it's usually at the top of my page and it's got, I don't know, a hundred, 200,000 views. 
Yeah, it's yes. genius. Any, anyone listening, definitely go check that out. It's absolutely genius and it's completely free. So, Ron, thank you so much, man. Like, it's been fascinating. I really appreciate your time. My, my pleasure entirely. Thank you. Thanks, man. This has been the Viral by Design podcast with Dave Rothero. For more viral marketing secrets and to get detailed cliff notes on all episodes, visit viralbydesign.net.